You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. It's just a horrible situation. Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. Yeah. <laughs> Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off, had an accident, got his tree, and went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20. I'm sorry. I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. 10. Hence being poked in the rear uh, as a man in the middle of the aisle. Climb now. Given the context that you've given me, this does not sound like a good plan. Clear of conflict. Welcome back. This is an aviation history podcast, which looks at aviation events like accidents, incidents, disasters, and mere mishaps. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator of this podcast. If you want to know my qualifications, you'll have to listen to episode zero of this podcast and you can learn all about me. If you want to see pictures of the airplanes and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at Aluminum Tube. So today though, before we get started, I'd like to appeal to my listeners. I need more co-hosts in the San Francisco Bay Area. I also need researchers to write about airplanes and companies that I cover. So if you'd like to be involved in this podcast, please hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. Both are at AluminumTube, like I said before, or you can email me at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com. So if you've listened to other episodes, you already know that I have a co-host who is not an aviation expert. Uh, their role is to ask questions that will help you, the listener, to better understand what actually happened. So my co-host is a returning co-host. He did part one with me. So uh, it's Kent Sarf. Uh, if you guys remember him from episode nine. So, Kent, tell us uh, what you've been doing since uh, episode nine. It's been a little while. <laughs> it has been a little while and uh, been doing some traveling. Uh, thankfully, our our work hasn't slowed down with uh, everything that's going on in the world today with the virus. In fact, I had to make a trip to Australia and then uh, another trip to Washington, D.C. Thankfully, we're all healthy and well. So that's fantastic and hope the rest for all of you and our listeners as well. Yeah, thanks for that, Ken. And also, um, I just want to make a note to the listeners that we are recording remotely today. So this is kind of an experiment. Hope the audio comes out well. I know that everybody will be able to hear it. Uh, I just hope it comes out nicely. But yeah, as a result of the virus, you know, um, I, I can travel freely, but I, I'm kind of concerned about getting stuck somewhere. Yeah, no doubt. Um, in fact, uh, our son was supposed to go to uh, Canada uh, for a spring break trip, and uh, we realized that he would probably have been stuck outside the U.S. So we were thankfully we were able to cancel that. And um, and again, hope for everyone is uh, uh, safe. And it, it's funny practicing a little bit of social distancing by a couple thousand miles to do this podcast. Uh, uh, recording today, so you know, and 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 actually, we were supposed to record this tomorrow. Do you remember that? Yeah, we were yeah. supposed to. We had a, initially said we were going to record this tomorrow, and the pain in the butt thing is that is that I actually am supposed to be in Denver right now, <laughs> skiing. Unfortunately, oh. Oh, I would dear. have rather been doing that than uh, stuck in Georgia. No anyway, doubt, I'd rather yeah. I'd rather be up skiing as well. Unfortunately, with all the resorts closed, um, it's definitely the right thing to do. Well, that's what happened. I, the resorts got closed, and um, and I kind of just saw that coming, and kind of just got everything rescheduled. I don't even know, you know, where this is going to go. So, you know, just for the historical record, we're talking about the COVID nineteen. You know, if somebody listens to this later, like yep. in a year or something, we're I'm stuck in Georgia, Kent's stuck in Colorado, and we're just kind of, uh, well, we're doing it from a distance. So, but you know, we're yep. we're going to make it happen. Yep, we'll make so, it work. So, Kent, um, did you notice that last time um, when you looked at your episode, I dubbed it "Up or Down, Left or Right, Part One"? Mm-hmm. And makes me wonder what's uh, what's in store for at least Part Two. Well, yeah. So today we're going to be doing Part Two. So last time I brought to you two flights. We're just going to do two flights again. And today we're talking about uh, a DHL airplane, DHL Flight Six Eleven, and a Russian airliner, actually Bashkirian Airlines. 2937. All right. And I just want to confirm, you don't know what this is going to be about. No, I don't. Uh, and I'm curious to, you know, find the link that ties the two together as well. You may catch on. This is a, a story that has presented itself in modern culture, but mm. it, it, I hadn't heard of it. So it's something maybe that's a little more obscure, but not quite as obscure as the other events we've covered in the past. So. All right. All right. So here's how we do it. I start with the date. I tell a little bit, a little bit about the airplanes then the companies, then we talk about the event, then we talk about what's changed since. That's how we do it. That's what we did last time, and that's how we'll do it this time. Sounds good. All right, you ready to get started, Kent? Yeah, let's get going. All right, the date, July 1st, 2002. Mm. 
It was only about 18 years ago. Yeah, and about 17 months after the event that we talked about last time. Okay, so some things were not yet changed, but were on the way to being changed. Right, exactly. The airplanes, of course, as usual, you can see them on my Instagram at Aluminum Tube. Uh, I'm going to post that. When I post this episode, I'll post the picture so everybody can see. DHL-611 was a Boeing 757-200PF, which means package freighter. So it's a a freight airplane, right? Okay. So big door and big slidey things instead of seats. (laughs) Right. And no windows. Yeah. Uh, The 757, generally speaking, is a narrow body airliner, which means a single aisle and a passenger configuration. It was designed and built by Boeing. Design started in 1978. The aircraft was certified in 1982. The freight version didn't enter service until 1987. Hmm. Um, It's a twin jet with the familiar like two engine under the wing design. Large, heavy aircraft designed for medium to long-range passenger freight use. Maximum weight around 255,000 pounds. Okay. Uh, It makes it the heaviest narrow body in use today, and these airplanes are still in use. Yeah, although um, Boeing stopped making them, right? So nobody, they're not making any more new ones. So everyone's still operating them in their fleet, but, you know, probably thinking about what's next. Right, exactly. Absolutely. So it has a relatively high thrust to weight ratio because the engines are quite large. Um, it's a good performer. It used it held the U.S. coast to coast speed record for an airliner for scheduled airline flight. Wow! For over twenty years until the seven eighty seven was released, and then they displaced that one. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I remember. I think remember flying a seven fifty seven into John Wayne, which has an incredibly short field, and it was always an energetic arrival and a real energetic departure, which to me was a blast. Oh, absolutely. And these airplanes, I'm actually typed typewriter in this airplane and have quite a bit of time in it. And these airplanes are really, really capable airplanes. I mean, they are excellent at short field performance. They're excellent at, you know, like you said, going to different places, going to uh, places with short fields, et cetera. So it's actually a really cool airplane. Cool. As a side note, a lot of airliners have industry nicknames. We call Uh the 787 Sparky because it's all electric, right? Uh (laughs) This one has a funny one. Uh, People call it the skinny girl with big tits. (laughs) Because it's long and thin and has these huge engines that hang under the wings. Yeah, I'm not sure that goes so well in a Me Too generation, but you know, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I haven't heard that in a few years, but I mean, literally like two years. But it, it it's been in the industry on and off. Yeah, that's good. we are kind of getting we are kind of getting away from that, aren't we? But if you listen to my last uh, to the last episode about flight attendants, oh. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we're still we're still kind of there too. Well, just the whole name of the cockpit instead of the flight deck. You know, uh, I remember. Oh, sure. I remember the first time I flew with a, a, a female flight crew, and and I was joking with the passenger next to me. I said, "I guess we can't call it the cockpit anymore." Oh yeah, now we have to call it the box office. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's uh, get back to this. The seven fifty seven, when configured for passenger operation, seats about two hundred and ten uh, in a split cabin design, meaning coach and first class. Just mm-hmm. you know. Just some interesting facts. Production on the 757 ran from 1982. It was released originally for the now defunct uh, Eastern Airlines. That was the lost. Mm. That was the launch customer. And production ended in 2004 when it was replaced by the GASP, even older design of the 737 NG. Wow. Yep. Uh, and I know people who actually worked on the uh, getting the NG certified and they were talking about um you know some of the interesting uh tests they had to do before uh, flight qualification fascinating stuff yes and you, you know they replaced a new model the 757 with an even older model and just yeah. boeing just doesn't i don't know anyway yeah, yeah. over a th- over 1757s were built during the during that time 1982 to 2004 uh, over 600 are still in operation today. Delta Airlines is the largest operator, the 757. But the 757 is still a very popular airliner in the industry. And almost every major carrier throughout the world uses the air- airplane. Kent, you probably don't need to see a picture of this one, right? Nope. I've, I've been in it several times. So the other airplane. Now, this one this one gets a little, this is a little different, right? This one is uh, Bashkirian uh, Flight 2937. It's a Tupolev. TU-154M. And you actually may be a little familiar with this. It was a very popular airliner, but we'll go through kind of the specs. And It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, airplane. Is that the Tupolev that looks like a 727 kind of? 
Exactly. That's the one. It's like a 727, but bigger. Okay. So so the TU-154 is a Russian three-engine, medium-range, narrow-body airliner that was designed in the mid-60s. It was manufactured by, like we said, Tupolev. It looks very similar to the uh, 727 but it's just physically larger and a little heavier. Mm, okay. okay. It weighed a maximum of about 230,000 pounds. It entered service in 1968. Launch customer was Aeroflot, mm. and they're the flag carrier for then the Soviet Union, but now it's still the flag carrier for Russia. It was the workhorse of the Soviet and subsequently Russian airlines, like all Russian airlines, Soviet airlines, Russian airlines. It was the standard, mostly domestic airliner of Russia, former Soviet states, it was also exported. 17 non-Russian airlines used it. It was used for heads of state throughout the world and a variety mm. of other mm. cargo operations, et cetera. And was the that T- mostly Eastern Bloc companies uh, that, yes, that yes. countries that it went to? Okay. Yep, absolutely. Um, a little bit in the Middle East, um, a little some in China, mostly Eastern Bloc, but actually a company in a German airline actually operated it for a little while. Huh. It's a very solid airplane. Um, it has a bad name. We're going to get into that, but it's that's not really the reason. Uh, the TU-154 is one of the fastest civilian airliners, hmm. but it has a range of only about 4,000 miles. So could go fast, didn't carry a lot of fuel. Here's the catch with Eastern Bloc Airlines. And before we get into it, it's interesting to know. When you build an airliner for the Russian market, it's got to be really beefy and durable and reliable. Right. So So the T. So everything from, you know, regular paved runways to, I imagine, like grass and and gravel strips and things like that. Grass and gravel and heaved concrete because they're uh, operating in extreme Arctic conditions. It had to be operated in a, it had a wide temperature variation because some of the stand countries have some of the hottest deserts and and the Mm. Middle East as well. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, Russia has the most extreme Arctic conditions in the world. And so it had to be operated in extreme temperatures and it was built for very low, very high temperatures, rough, neglected airstrips, and also lack of maintenance facilities. So it had multiples. It had duplicate systems. So if one system went down, you could still get out of, you know, uh, Petroplavosky or something without uh, maintenance. So kind of a, t- a tank of the sky <laughs> kind of yeah, thing Yeah, re- realistically, realistically very much of the tank of the sky. Wow. It was designed to handle up to 180 passengers in a three slash three configuration. So three seats, a row, and three mm-hmm. seats. Again, a narrow body, right? It was produced in a whole lot of variants. I mean, a whole lot of variants. But today we're talking about the most modern variant, the M variant. And at the time of the event, the aircraft was still being manufactured. We said it was 2002. The aircraft was actually officially manufactured until 2013. Wow. That is a long... So from the 60s to 2013. To 2013. In total, about 900 were built. The production unofficially ended in 2013. Mm. I say... So... Yeah, what does that mean? (laughs) Unofficially, right? So I found, when doing research, I found that there are still four certified fuselages sitting in the factory awaiting completion, and there are enough parts and enough support to complete those four. So, Ken, if you wanted to buy a Tupolev 154M, you could actually order one and have a brand new one. Well, I mean, not delivered today, but you could buy it today. That's crazy. Wow. That, that, That is nuts, because is anyone flying them still? at this point not that i could really find i think there's some heads of state there's a little military use out there but these have mostly for the largest part been abandoned yeah because you know everything is so much more efficient these days i'd imagine just the overall operating cost is so much oh lower. yeah absolutely and these things were not these were bad with bad on fuel yeah. so this airplane got a bad name it was operated by a lot of operators I and mean, like we said 900 you know were made but over the years there were 38 fatal accidents involved with this airplane that's kind mm. of a lot for 900 and people say it was unsafe but i actually disagree because when i did the research there were only three accidents attributed to mechanical failure hmm. all three of those were engine related not fuselage related engine related so they were really? like a, a huh. compressor section explosions and no other mechanicals no. Uh, but here's why but here's why the rest were simply a result of the aircraft being operated in such extreme conditions so uh, they basically like so slid off of icy runways they crashed in fog yep there was a lot of pilot error because remember that for a while after the soviet union kind of broke down mm-hmm. there really wasn't a governing body that was like overseeing inspections and stuff oh really no there was uh, really so 
so each operator, each airline was basically doing their own thing without any kind of you know centralized supervision or standardization of of, of procedures. Then, yeah, exactly, like. and they, and they were just doing like they were doing what they could do, I guess, to continue to make a profit because after the Soviet Union fell, there was no money for them, so they had to basically they had to like make money and they put money over people's lives. Mm. Boeing. Sorry. <laughs> um, but had they operated in accordance with the manufacturer, had the pilots been trained better, things would have likely been different. In short, what I'm saying is it was a really good mm. airplane. Um, it was misused, mm. but it was a okay. good airplane. Well, and you might yeah. want to see a picture of this one. So, yep. Okay, so let's talk about the companies. The companies. DHL was started by a guy named Larry Hillblom. He's the H in DHL. Uh, okay. There's So there's a D and an L somewhere. Oh, absolutely. He came up <laughs> with the concept of the fast of fast parcel delivery while he was studying law at University of California, Berkeley. And then he actually made it happen. He, he took, t took on two partners, uh, Dalsey, sorry, uh, Dalsey yeah. and Lynn. So Dalsey, Hillblom and Lynn, DHL. It was founded in the United States in 1969. It expanded its service throughout the world in the late 1970s. The company was primarily interested in offshore and intercontinental deliveries. So mostly international stuff and, and stuff dealing with boats. But the success of FedEx prompted their intra-US expansion starting in 1983. So that's when FedEx kind of started taking off. But in 1998, Deutsche Post, um, which is the German post office, began to acquire shares mm -hmm. in DHL. And by 2002, they acquired controlling. complete controlling shares. Yeah. They absorbed DHL into the Deutsche Post Express division uh, in the early 2000s. But today, it's called Deutsche Post DHL. It's the largest logistics company in the world. Really? Because I figured FedEx and UPS would be right up there as well. I didn't know it was the biggest. Because for a while, DHL was trying to make a big push in the US, and then they kind of backed off of that. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly when that happened, maybe about four or five years ago. I'm not really sure. So domestically, you're right. UPS and FedEx are the largest, but apparently not You know, globally. Uh, so it's the largest logistics company. They serve over 220 countries, particularly in ocean cargo shipping and airmail. That's their specialty. Okay. They deliver over 1.3 billion parcels just via airplane per year. Uh, we don't see DHL in the United States anymore. Remember, we used to see them. Because DHL, here's, mm -hmm. here's why. Because DHL is no longer a United States company, so it's not allowed to make domestic flights. Yeah. Ah, so okay. that makes so perfect FedEx sense. So FedEx and UPS deliver packages for DHL in the United States. That's, that's what uh, happened okay. to DHL. That makes sense. Okay, so, but they're still around. So the other company, Bashkirian Airlines, um, or BAL, it was an airline based out of Ufa Airport in Ufa, Russia. The airline was originally set up as an Aeroflot charter division to handle like VIP mm. stuff. At its peak in 2006, mm -hmm. Bashkirian Airlines had, had 24 airplanes, just a few variants. All Russian makes 1,500 employees. It operated some regionally scheduled routes, a few regionally scheduled routes from Ufa, and did charter services to Europe, Asia, North Africa. The company was founded in 1991. It was liquidated in 2007. Wow. 16-year run. Yeah, but it, it was always part of Aeroflot. So it's like a, just an Aeroflot division. Okay. So, uh, so the crew. Mm -hmm. The crew of the DHL. And like I said before, I, I don't use crew names unless it's important. And in this case, it's not important. So I'll just tell you about the crews. Okay. That's fair. The the Boeing 757 required two crew members and had two crew members on board. Uh, 47 year old British captain. He had over 4,000 hours in the 757. Very experienced. He was with a 34 year old Canadian mm -hmm. first officer. That first officer only had 175 hours in the aircraft. Uh, so he was relatively new, but both had flawless training records. Oh, okay. The Bashkirian 2937, the Tupolev uh, TU-154M. It required four crew members. A captain, his uh, he was 57 years old. It required a first officer, an engineer, he was 37, and a navigator, he was 50. But today, there were five crew members on the flight deck. And this is crazy because there's a picture actually on my uh, Instagram of how they fit five on this five crew members on this flight deck. Okay. <laughs> is it like a sardines in a can kind of thing? It pretty much is. Um, but I didn't say the FO's age because this is interesting. The first officer position was being performed by the 40-year-old chief pilot of the airline of uh, Bashkirian mm -hmm. who was acting as a check airman. So basically, he was giving the chef, the captain his line check. Okay. What's a line check? Oh, okay. So every certain amount of time, 
at, at some airlines, it's six months. At some airlines, it's nine months. Sometimes it's a year. Mm-hmm. Basically, a, a, a qualified check airman, a qualified like instructor goes out and just checks the captain and checks the first officer to make sure that they know what they're doing. It's like a functional check. Yeah, so they're... Yeah, so they're meeting a performance bar, and and there's no uh, red flags or any any other issues. The the idea is to spot them early, right? Exactly. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And okay. these guys were a good crew. They were known to be a good crew. So, they, but the the chief pilot still had to give them a check. So the chief pilot is he is actually the aircraft commander. So he's acting as the pilot in command. He's giving a line check to the captain today. Okay, so essentially we have two captains on the flight mm. deck. The first, the regular first officer, he's age 41. He was riding in the cockpit at the time. So there are five crew members in the cockpit. And like I said, it's crazy. I, I'll post a picture on the Instagram. It's wacky seating positions, but it's it's really unusual. Everybody in the in the cockpit, all five pilots, the first officer, the captain, the navigator, and the flight engineer, and the second first officer, they're all in good standing with the company. There was no issues. Do you have any questions so far? That, no, um, I'm curious to where this is headed with, with that much experience on the flight deck. I'm, I'm curious. And the fact that there's a navigator position in the Tupolev um, tells me that, that the navigation systems aren't, you know, uh, aren't very similar to what's being used today in terms of you know, the fact that manual navigation is required. Yeah, you're, this, I mean, that's a good catch. Basically, you know, Russia, we have something called uh, WGS-84, and it's essentially a GPS mapping system where we went and we satellite mapped the whole globe and it was put, they enacted in 1984 mm. and Russia is not a WGS 84 country. So they don't have GPS. They have GPS, but it's not like what we have at this time. Yeah. They've got GLONASS, right? I'm or not really like sure, that? but we yeah. have like so oh, yeah, much, yeah. you probably know more about that than me. We have a lot of GPS coverage now. Russia does now too, but back then they yeah. didn't have as much GPS coverage and they were not a WGS 84 country. So they were not geodetically like compliant. That's why they needed a navigator. It was different back then. I mean, is were they were they using computers at that point, or was it still charts and calculators? So for them, it was so for them it was still charts. Yeah. Wow. And okay. if anybody looks at this, and and there's this weird mint green cockpit. The the, the cockpit is mint green. It's like this weird color. <laughs> I looked this up. I, I was like, why is this color? Why is the cockpit this stupid color? And it's because the Russians had some data that showed that it was calming. But to me, it looks a little wacky. So when you see the pictures of the cockpit, you'll go, I mean, the first thing, it just feels like an assault on your eyes. Yeah, the the pastel warfare has begun. What what is this color about? Stop, you know, but yeah, that's why. So it's just a weird thing. Yeah, you know, I I remember seeing, um, I remember seeing, you know, uh, some documentaries and things like that where Rums painted a certain shade of pink had a had a measurable effect on tension and oh, violence okay. and, and yeah, uh, yeah. calming influence, right? So I, I don't doubt that, but you know, maybe they could have you know picked their pick their color a little bit differently. Not that I'm advocating for pink flight decks. Right. But that is but I mean it's a good point. But that is why. So when you look at it, it's gonna be weird and green and you're gonna go, what the heck? But that is why. It's cause it's <laughs> something about calming. So you got so noted. Yeah, you got any questions so far? <laughs> nope, nope. Let's all go. All right, all right. So the events. It all started in a uh, small city of Ufa, Russia. Like we said, it's located at the base of the Ural Mountains, east of the Volga River, about a thousand miles south of Moscow. Kind of in the middle of nowhere, to be honest. Uh, I had to look it up on a map. Yeah. I kind of have an idea in the world where it is, but if you just you know look up Ufa. It's out there. The image that comes to my mind is of uh, Dr. Shivago at the train in the middle of nowhere approaching the mountains. That's pretty much, <laughs> honestly, that's pretty much it, yeah. Local city and state officials planned a school trip for 52 Russian school children. Most of them were children of high-ranking Russian regional officials from the oil-rich, I'll mess this one up, Bashkortostan Autonomous Republic, I guess it's like a state within hmm. Russia, and the average age for the children okay. was uh, 14 or 15, but the youngest... Uh, was four. Her name was Diana. She was traveling with her mother, Svetlana, and her big brother, 10 years old. His name was Konstantin. The father is named Vitaly Kaloyev. He's an architect. He's a generally good guy. He helped his family to the airport on Saturday morning to see them off. The trip was organized by the local UNESCO committee. A father of these children was the local UNESCO leader. The trip Mm, went from Ufa to Moscow and then they were going to Costa Dorado, the area of Spain called Costa Dorado. 
for UNESCO convention. And if you don't know what UNESCO is, it's United Nations Sanctioned Youth and Cultural Development Program. It stands for United Nation, Nations Educational Scientific and Cultural Organization. So it's basically like a UN okay. uh, ch- children or yeah. like youth program. I would think it's like sort of like model UN. Yep. So uh, as a complete aside, um, I had an opportunity to travel to Egypt and I saw the Temple of Abu Simbel. It was going to be flooded when they built um, the Aswan High Dam and and filled Lake Nasser. And so UNESCO paid for this international effort to take the temple, saw it in the big blocks, move it up the hill 200 yards and build a fake mountain around it so that the temple would be saved when Lake Nasser was created. That's, that's, that's how I knew UNESCO, but uh, now it makes sense with the broader mission. They're more than just moving moving historic sites right, around. Right, yeah. They're uh, basically an international group to keep people uh, and youth involved in the UN. Okay. Cool. Uh, the, the kids and their parents' chaperones left Ufa and flew on a Bashkirian flight to Moscow. They landed in Moscow on Saturday at an airport across town. There are four airports in Moscow. can be kind of confusing. And they were shuttled to meet their connector, but the van took them to the wrong airport. So they missed their regularly <laughs> scheduled Bashkirian airline flight to Costa Dorado, Spain. As a result, the kids were supposed to have left Saturday for Spain, but they missed their connection. Since the group was so large and so closely tied to government officials and Bashkirian Airlines had set up their transportation, which ultimately took them to the wrong mm-hmm. place. The airline was notified of the misconnection. The kids were put in a hotel. Bashkirian Airlines talked about it and they organized a special charter flight to Barcelona so that the kids wouldn't miss uh, the UNESCO festival that they'd paid to uh, paid to go to in Barcelona. That was really nice of them. A nice recovery. It was. The special flight um, arranged just for them was set to depart Moscow on Monday around 6.30 p.m. and fly around five hours to Barcelona. That was flight BAL 2937. It departed Moscow about 6.48 p.m. It had 12 crew. Remember, we'd, mm. uh, we said there were five people in the mm-hmm. cockpit and seven flight attendants, but only 57 passengers. The crew had lots of notice. They had over 24 hours of notice for the flight, and they were well-rested. And like I said, you know, they departed in the afternoon, evening, early evening, so not a Yeah, it's deal. not like you're uh, 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 taking off uh, close to midnight and doing, an all, uh, doing a red eye or something like that. Yeah, no, they, they had plenty of rest. So the, and then the DHL uh, 611, the Boeing 757-200, they departed Bahrain on a cargo flight at about 1.30 p.m. that same day. Mm-hmm. They flew to Bergamo, Italy. The flight took ju- just under six hours. It stopped for a few hours in Bergamo. It was fueled, had cargo unloaded and loaded. It, was then, it then departed ba- uh, Bergamo for Brussels. Yep. It's in northern Italy. It departed Bergamo for Brussels at five minutes after 9 p.m., It was a long day for that crew, but it was legal. And the crew had actually had 3.5 days of rest prior to leaving Bahrain. Nice. So they had plenty of uh, rest too. Let's see, Bahrain was their base. So they were essentially home. Not bad. For for the days before. Yeah. So DHL uh, 611 climbed to 26,000 feet, then to 32,000 feet. Then they requested a climb to 36,000 feet. They were granted the request. They climbed up. And that was their final altitude. They headed northwestbound through Switzerland and approached the German border. Okay. Yeah, that all makes sense. Okay. So back on the Tupolev, 69 people on board. There was a flight crew of five, seven flight attendants, 57 passengers. 52 of them are kids and five adults. Okay. Yeah, that sounds pretty ominous given your track record for disasters. Uh, (laughs) So the the Tupolev uh, levels initially at 32,000 feet. Uh, they burned a bit of gas. They climbed up to 36,000 feet as the airplane flew southwest bound mm-hmm. over Poland into Germany and approached the Swiss border. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there were five crew members in the cockpit. We covered that already, but let's recap just real quick. You have a captain in the left seat who's flying. You have the first, you have the first officer, right, who's the Czech airman, yeah. uh, the, the chief pilot. You have the navigator, the assigned first officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in the jump seat sitting sideways. And then okay. you have a uh, flight engineer, and he's facing the panel. Yeah. And the panel is always sideways, never never forward, right? It's always sideways and always behind the first officer's seat. So always behind the right seat. Okay. Yeah. So if I could, I'll describe it quickly. Basically, you have a left seat, a right seat. Then slightly after that, you have a middle seat. Okay. And then on the right rear, you have someone facing the wall. Uh-huh. And on the left rear, you have someone facing into the cockpit. Oh, 
Weird. Okay. So he's basically, so the, the first officer, the assigned first officer is sitting behind the captain and his seat is back against the wall. That's where the jump seat is located. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Yeah. So it makes a little more sense. So as they approached the Swiss border, they saw an aircraft on their TCAS. It indicated the same altitude. It was the 757 DHL 611. Mm-hmm. It was approaching them from the left at a 90 degree angle. Mm-hmm. Their TCAS, they saw the, the traffic on their TCAS way ahead of time a full minute and a half Mm. before any potential conflict, Mm -hmm. right? The Russian crew had plenty of time to discuss it in the cockpit. The whole crew was involved in the discussion, except the flight engineer, I guess he was busy flight engineering. I'm not really sure. (laughs) He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't on the CVR. Okay. (laughs) So the Tupolev um, crew initiated a turn to the left. They did not advise ATC of the left turn. Mm. Okay. All crew aboard the Bashkirian 2937. They were alert. They were all concerned about the traffic. Eight seconds after they initiated the turn, the Swiss controller called them. He issued a descent to 35,000 feet. Okay. And the moment they acknowledged it, the TCAS issued an alert and it, it just said traffic, traffic. Okay. So the initial alert for a TCAS is just. So basically a heads up. Yes. It's a heads up. It's not. So what we call it's a TA, which is a traffic alert and a RA is a resolution advisory. Oh, Okay. Or a traffic advisory and a resolution advisory. The resolution advisory is the one we talked about last time. It tells you to climb descent. Mm-hmm. The traffic advisory just says, hey, you have traffic and it's a potential conflict. So it doesn't okay. issue anything yet. Just before this and during, the German controllers who had been previously monitoring the TU-154, they attempted to call the Swiss controllers via phone to alert them of the potential conflict. Mm -hmm. But the phone lines were down for maintenance. Mm -hmm. There were two Swiss controllers in the air traffic center that night. And a few minutes before the aircraft entered the sector, one had gotten up to take a break. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a whole sequence of things coming together into a system problem here. (laughs) The experienced controller that was left, his name is Peter Nielsen. He was left to run the traffic in the sector. There were only two airplanes that he was working at the time. Bashkirian 2937 and DHL 611. Mm. Okay. So they're they're both being monitored by the same air traffic controller. They're both in the same sector. So you'd think there'd be really good visibility as to the, the whole situational awareness of what's going on, right? Absolutely. Because you remember in the last episode, that guy was working like 15 airplanes or something. Right. Well, this guy, uh, Peter Nielsen, he's only working two. Now in Switzerland, they had this backup uh, traffic conflict alerting system. Uh, Peter was unaware, but middle management had actually turned it off and there's not really an explanation why they turned it off (laughs) to be clear these airplanes are on a collision course yeah okay Uh, uh, all right (laughs) so meanwhile the dhl 611 the 757 had leveled off at thirty-six thousand feet for just four minutes Mm -hmm. the first officer was flying he transferred controls to the captain so that he could go to the bathroom Mm-hmm. Um, now the bathroom was just behind the co-pilot seat in a freight configured airplane. They put, essentially, they put the bathroom in the cockpit. So the guys oh, don't okay. have to, so they, it's a short walk. <laughs> yeah. So they don't have yep. to leave. Okay. But just as he gets up, um, they received their first TCAS alert. Okay. So their traffic alert advisory, right? So okay. it says traffic, traffic, the traffic on their display was crossing from the right at almost a 90 degree angle. Yeah. It showed the sense. same altitude yeah. as the 757 and the crew was heard saying that they saw the Tupolev. Okay. Now, it's nighttime. All they see are lights. Right. It's very hard to judge how th- how far things are away with with just lights, okay? I try to do thorough research. I went back and I looked at the lunar record, actually. Uh-huh. Um, they would be above the clouds, okay. but, but the lunar record shows a new moon. Oh, so... So so it's dark. So nothing... Yeah, it's really dark. Nothing illuminating the aircraft other than just the lights. Right. right. And it's really hard to judge distance from just a few lights. So Bashkirian 2937 was issued an immediate descent by the controller in an urgent call, just as the airplane's TCAS issued a climb, 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 climb command. Now we're back on Bashkirian. The autopilot was switched off. The captain pushed the control yoke forward and he began a descent. The Russian crew is heard on the CVR and the Czech airman says, quote, it says climb, unquote. And the captain is heard saying, quote, he told us to descend unquote, meaning the controller, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, the, the, basically, the, the you get conflicting conflicting direction. And, you know, we all know now, you just listen to the TCAS and ignore everything else. But, okay. Right, but we talked about this in another episode. So the aircraft is, 
then pitched further forward because the controller told him to send. Yeah. The aircraft is pitched a little farther forward. The DHL is issued the opposite TCAS alert. Okay. Mm-hmm. The resolution advisory says descend, 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 descend. descend. Yeah. They were not issued any ATC constru- uh, instructions. So Peter Nielsen in, in the ATC facility, he did not call them and say, huh. Om, the only directions that were issued were issued to the Russian airliner, not the DHL. Yeah. So now they're descending as well. Yeah. 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 And they're, they're both descending out of the same altitude from probably at pro- near same rate, right? Uh, I would imagine. Yep. Roughly the same rate. Oh. Um, now they call the Swiss controller and they tell the Swiss controller they're descending. The call goes unacknowledged. Mm. So back on the Tupolev, mm. the, crew, the crew can be heard now asking each other where the traffic is. The controller says, and this is a quote, it's at your two o'clock. That's what the controller says. So think about that for a moment. It's at so your two o'clock. That We're would mean that it passed... If you're on the Tupolev, it would have been passed left to right and be of no concern at that point. Correct. So right? if that call was directed actually at the DHL 611, but it confuses <laughs> the Russian crew because there was no call sign attached. So now uh, the Russian crew is looking out the right side of the airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because they, like you said, they think it passed. Yeah. But then the captain in the Tupolev says, I see it here on the left. The navigator says it's going to pass below, meaning the 757 was going to pass below. Uh The Russian captain pulls back hard on the control yoke, stops the descent, pushes the throttle forward. At the same time, the DHL crew is heard saying, descend, descend hard. Yep. The Boeing does pass under the Tupolev, but unlike Uh the JAL 747 in part one, the last minute actions are not enough. Oh, no. The vertical tail of the Boeing impacts the Tupolev just where the front of the wing meets the fuselage. Oh, oh, yeah. Eighty percent of the Boeing's tail is sheared off. The Boeing begins an uncontrolled descent toward the ground. It crashes just four miles from the airborne impact site. Oh my gosh! So basically, a near vertical descent. Yeah. Oh, you can if they're at thirty-six thousand feet, it's pretty much vertical. Yeah. The Tupolev is cut deeply by the tail. It breaks into two pieces. Oh. It continues to break up as it tumbles down. It scatters wreckage over ten square miles. Oh. Oh, <sighs> makes you feel sick. So the accident was fatal. Yeah. It killed 69 people on the Bashkirian 2937 and two aboard of the DHL 611. All right, let's let's go back to 17 months prior. 17 months prior to this collision, two Japan Airlines aircraft nearly met the same fate. Mm-hmm. The incident that we covered in episode nine resulted in no immediate action by governing by governing authorities, but the IKO was in the midst of designing better guidance for following TCAS mm-hmm. alerts over verbal commands, but had not issued that guidance yet. Additionally, software updates were in the works to allow for something called a TCAS reversal, but they had not been released. Mm. So let me explain that. Let me decode a TCAS reversal just real quick. Thank you. That basically means that if one crew is told to descend and their TCAS tells them to climb mm-hmm. and they start a descent, at this time, the other airplane may tell them to descend, but then may change its, but then the reversal would be that it changes its mind. Okay. Yeah. Cause it they're, sees that cause they're, they're interrogating okay. each other several times a second, even at this, at this day and age, right? Right. Absolutely. So current updates is that the reversal works. Yeah. So if somebody is given a descend and they climb and the other one is given a climb, the one who is paying attention yep. yeah. will actually reverse so that they don't impact yep. the software in 2002 when this happened did not allow for that. Mm. <sighs> okay. So in the last episode, I remember specifically you asked me if any immediate action Mm-hmm. Um, taken yeah. by governments would have eventually saved lives. And I told you they would, in fact, have prevented fatalities. This mm. is the accident to which I was referring. So has the, uh, I mean, it's horrible, right? Uh, but has has that situation changed? Uh, are there more immediate um, uh, directives done these days? Because um, acting with speed would have, you know, and, and with, with action would have, would have saved several lives, several dozen lives here. Yes. And it, Things do happen quickly now, much more quickly. But we said it took it took two years, more than yeah. two years to issue these updates and then five years. So that time is essentially now cut in half. Hmm. It's still roughly two to three years from the time something happens to the time that IKO 
gets the directive and everybody is trained because in a way they they're like the uh, FDA they want to make sure they do it right well yeah so but if there's something yeah. so egregious you know you want to take action immediately right uh, I completely agree with you yeah. so let's talk about the investigation so the German investigation authority issued a report showing that both crews had been both professional and vigilant hmm. and both crews had actually followed procedures hmm. The DHL-611 had not been issued any commands by ATC, and they did as exactly as they were supposed to do. They followed their TCAS. Yep. Bashkirian Airlines actually had a regulation in their manual that said ATC commands were to be followed over TCAS commands. Mm. Wow. So Yeah, so the, B, wow. so, the, so the Bashkirian 2937, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. Right, which was the wrong thing in this case. Unfortunately, that's right. The TCAS systems were not at the time capable of issuing a reversal. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. That was fixed. They do that today. So both TCAS systems were functional and they also did what they were supposed to do. So, I mean, where does the blame for these lives go? Um, the fact that nobody considered a possibility like this at that point in time, even though there was evidence that, um, that not prioritizing the TCAS um, would have immediate impact. Uh, I, that is a, that's a tough question to answer. And it went through the court system for quite some time. So mm. the Swiss controller, so here's just more. So the Swiss controller wasn't able to be contacted by the German controllers due to phone line issues. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was nobody's fault. However, the Swiss backup system had been switched off and the other controller was on break. Again, that controller going on break, that was not abnormal. Yeah. However, the system had been switched off. Yeah, th this Peter is, Nielsen. Yeah, this, this is one of these cases where no single one of those actions would have had a catastrophic impact. That's right. But together in a sequence, they all contributed to it. Yes. Uh, the, At the, any the, time, had one of these things worked, had one of these things been yeah. a little bit different, things would have been better. Yeah, the failure right. chain is like nine elements long here, which is just damning. It really is. It, it really is crazy. So Peter Nielsen, the Swiss controller... He was not indicted for any wrongdoing. However, four middle managers, mm. the ones that switched off, the yep. ones that were responsible for the backup system, mm -hmm. uh, they were eventually and issued suspended sentences for mismanagement of the backup systems. Some other things that aren't really related to the story. They did an audit and they found some other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they were sentenced to prison time, but again, issued suspended sentences. So besides those managers, everything went wrong, but nobody involved was immediately made any mistakes. Yeah. So everybody did everything right, but everything went wrong. Yeah. It's a capital S system failure. And it was that, you know, the sequence of things, the chain of the chain of failures. Uh, uh, yeah. Those are right. the, those are the most difficult no, ones right. to diagnose and to, and to fix. Right. I mean, you break any link of that chain and the, the horror wouldn't have happened. That's true. Yep, that's absolutely true. So like I said in part one, the implementation of these rules and changes took five years to get out to all the training departments. Mm. And the TCAS reversal issue was fixed. Now pilots around the world are trained to follow the TCAS over all other instructions. Yep. yep. Also, if someone doesn't follow the TCAS, like we said, the software update allows for a reversal going from climb, climb now, climb, climb now, to descend, descend now, descend, descend now, if the other airplane is not listening. It's also been updated to add some additional yeah. comments yeah. the TCAS system has, and it'll say climb, crossing, climb, climb, crossing, climb, or descend, crossing, so, descend. What is it? That allows you to know that the airplane is not coming directly at you, and it's giving you a sort of a clue uh, as to what where the other position of the aircraft is. Yeah, kind of a visual cue to, to know where you should be right, looking. Right, to look and go, well, I don't see that. You know, So if someone goes, oh, well, that's erroneous, yeah. it might be because it's saying crossing. It's it's over here, and you can't see it. Right. It's crossing you at, at an oblique angle. Yeah. So that's yeah. why they added those. But like I said in part one, yeah. It never issues turns. Mm. Right. Because turns would just take too long to have him to have too long. Uh, a big change. And we can see that in this because the Bashkirian crew actually did start. They initiated a turn on their own, but that turn, they turned a few degrees, 10 degrees, mm -hmm. but it didn't make any difference mm. because 10 degrees when you were on a collision course, 
left or right does, d- didn't change anything. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about what the likelihood of this happening again is. And it's incredibly infinitesimally low. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's very low. Yeah, because you know the TCAS still doesn't issue commands to the flight control system directly. There's still a pilot who has to make a decision to act on what the TCAS says. Right. All right. So that's the crash in a synopsis. Okay. So let's just recap real quick. So 54 school-age kids are dead. Mm. and two crews dead. yeah it's pretty bad so we're not there yet though you ready to move on well what happened on the ground right so when the news so when the news of the crash hit ufa the town broke down all but eight of the passengers on board were residents of ufa mm. and obviously and ufa was a town of about nine hundred thousand at the time so pretty small i mean not not tiny but yeah. pretty small and obviously most mm-hmm. were kids children mm. The town went immediately into mourning. Mm-hmm. Schools were closed. Businesses just didn't open. A newspaper said, quote, people wandered around in a fog of grief and confusion. Of course. I mean, shock. And initially, they weren't entirely sure if it was survivable, if anyone had survived, because the news was kind of trickling in. Because obviously, we're going from Swiss controller, German border, and now we're translating yeah. it into Russian. Well, and okay. then, you know, the debris field is so enormous. And, you know, when the plane right. breaking up at 36,000 yep. feet that I imagine the search took an enormously long time. And everyone's just, you know, waiting on pins and needles to find out about their loved ones, their friends, etc. Absolutely. So Vitaly Kalyev, we talked about him in the beginning, remember? Mm-hmm. His entire family was, on, was aboard BAL 2937. Uh, his wife, Svetlana, uh, and his two children. Mm. He rushed to the site to assist in the search. He found his wife's body in a field, his son's body in a parking lot near a bus station, and his little daughter's body in a wooded area. Her fall had been broken by the trees. An autopsy showed that she had only a few broken bones, and he was quoted as saying initially she looked alive. (sighs) So Vitaly, that's hard to hear. I can't imagine. Yeah, me neither. So Vitaly spent the next year in mourning. His brother reported that he suffered a complete breakdown. Mm-hmm. He built a shrine to his family in his home. He slept at their gravesite, regardless of weather. Mm. And at the memorial service for the one-year anniversary of, of this tragedy, he asked the head of Sky Guide, which was the Swiss Air Traffic Control Agency, about the possibility of meeting the controller who had, in his mind, been responsible for the disaster. Mm. He received no response. Vitaly then hired a Russian private investigator to find Peter Nielsen's address outside Mm. of Zurich. Peter Nielsen was diagnosed with PTSD. He Mm -hmm. was sent home with paid leave while the investigation was conducted. His colleagues reported that he blamed himself for the accident. I get that. I mean, understandable, but wow. Just tragedy all around. It is. So Peter was unable to return to work. Yeah. His family reported that he had trouble just with basic functions for a long time after the accident. After a year, uh, Peter, his family said that Peter had recovered his basic daily functions, but remained on paid leave. Mm. Yeah, I know. None of this sounds good. So on the afternoon of February 24th, 2004, less than two years after the accident, a neighbor of Peter Nielsen saw a man wandering around the neighborhood looking lost. He asked the stranger, Vitaly Kalyev, if he needed help. Mm. Vitaly waved a piece of paper with Peter Nielsen's name on it. Vitaly could only speak broken German. The neighbor pointed to Nielsen's front door. Vitaly proceeded to his house, <sighs> but instead of knocking, Vitaly just sat down in the garden. Peter had lived in uh, Switzerland since 1995. He looked out the window, he spotted the man sitting in his garden, and he went outside and asked Vitaly what he wanted. Peter's three children followed him into the garden, and his wife stayed inside. Mm -hmm. After a few minutes, she heard a kind of scream. Mm. Vitaly had stabbed Peter several times, and Peter died of his injuries a few minutes later in the presence of his wife and three children. Oh, jeez. Wow. (sighs) Vitaly was arrested and charged with premeditated killing. So in Europe, premeditated killing lies somewhere between murder and manslaughter in the United States. Okay. So it's kind of like a little gray area between murder yep. and manslaughter. Yep. Vitaly Kalayev was sentenced to eight years in prison. Still, I mean, the death of the controller, the, his time in prison doesn't do anything to bring back. Um, I completely agree with you. I mean, Vitaly was definitely not in his no. full state for sure. You know, he had been an architect and a respected member of the community and he just, Vitaly just broke. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds that's like what happened, but it sounds like Peter just broke too. Um, yeah. Um, so this, you know, this is a this is just 
a hugely tragic story from both sides. And, and, you know, the tragedy never stops. So it's just, it's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. At his trial, Vitali answered questions from the judge. He said that the plane crash had ended his life. He said his children were the youngest on board the Bashkirian 2937, and they were. Hmm. He said that he was crushed by the loss of his family. Of course. Quote, I've been living in the cemetery for almost two years, sitting beside their graves. Hmm. And he had actually been sleeping there um, in all weather and not with a tent. The dude was just sleeping there. Oh, Talk about somebody, and that, or I mean, so many people need, needed help, um, you know, just so many people needed help. Yeah. Vitaly presented a document to the court where the Swiss air traffic control firm had offered him 60,000 Swiss francs for the death of his wife, 50,000 francs for the death of each of his two children. And in return, he would have to decline any further claims. So that's not, I mean. Yeah, that's, again, nothing can replace the value of your family. I mean, that's just. So he told the judge that the document had infuriated him so badly Mm. that he decided to meet with the director of the control agency and that the request was ignored. Vitali, quote, apparently he did not expect that he would have to answer for the results of his work, unquote. When he met Peter in the garden, Vitali said, he murmured something to me. Then I showed him some pictures of my children and I said, these these were my children. What would you feel if you saw your children in coffins? Then Vitali said that he, that all he wanted from Peter was an apology for the death of his family. But he said that Peter hit his hand and he was holding an envelope. It had the photographs of his children. Tali said, I only remember having a very disturbing feeling as if the body of bodies of my children were turning over in their graves. And Vitali claims he has no memory of the attack. Oh, I mean, oh, this is just tragedy on tragedy on tragedy. I mean, yeah, like I said, the, the hits never stop coming. I mean, this is, it's, it's awful, it's awful all around. You can understand that if you isolated yourself, if, if, if you weren't getting help, if you weren't dealing with, you know, the core underlying grief that, you know, that you would break and, oh, he just needed help. Yeah, he did. He needed help for sure. And I think Peter had help, um, mm. but obviously he didn't need right. this. No, nobody does. And we are, and we, and we all know that Peter felt, sure. I mean, he used, he had PTSD and he couldn't return it. We, we know that he felt terrible. The judge asked him why he brought a weapon and, uh, uh Vitaly never offered an explanation for that. Mm. Mm. Initially, Vitaly Kaliev served two years in a Swiss prison. He was released, found that he was not in a mental state to have understood what he was doing. So essentially like sort of reason of temporary insanity is what we would think. Yep. He was released in late 2007. Mm. He returned home. Vitaly Kelyev was met with a parade in his honor. Mm-hmm. People chanted, you are the real man. So my friend Oksana, uh, she translated that for me. So shout out to her. So when asked for a speech, Vitaly said to the crowd, mm-hmm. I don't really take offense at people who call me a murderer. People who say they would betray their own children, their own motherland. I protected the honor of my children and the memory of my children. But he continued, and he said, he's nobody to me. He was an idiot, and that's why he paid for it with his life. If he'd been smarter, it, would, it wouldn't have been like this. If he'd invited me into his house, the conversation would have happened in, a softer, in softer tones, and the tragedy may not have happened. Oh. Uh, doesn't sit well with you? Yeah, that, that doesn't ring. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't at all. I mean, it, it's clear that the guy was broken and needed a whole lot of assistance in getting through it. And obviously doing Peter in would do nothing to bring back the lives of his family and, and the other families of Ufa. It just absolutely nothing at all. And, and then it also begs the question of why would he have brought a knife? Right. Right. Uh, it's just, yeah, yeah, it doesn't sit well. And, and just his, just his speech, his general speech, that sounds to me like an internal conversation. Yeah. yeah. That he'd had. Yeah. Well, and I'm kind of disturbed by the town throwing a parade in his honor as well, because again, you know, none of that violence would bring back any of those family members. And I'm sure they're trying to, um, you know, deal with their grief in any way possible and, you know, some kind of victory over some foe that was even exonerated by um, investigations, right? Uh, right and, just, and oh, just, it's, and it's a just cycle a bro- it, just it, a broken person yeah yeah it's just a it's just a cycle of regret it's a it's it's horrible so but let's let's talk about what happened later so vitaly returned to germany 10 years after the incident of the anniversary of the crash 
okay. He returned on the 10 year anniversary. He was arrested by German officials and, uh, and he was jailed hmm. because he had been fined 157,000 francs for his partial incarceration. I don't quite understand that. I think because I don't, I don't really know, but anyway, he had been fined. He refused to pay the fine. Hmm. He refused to pay the fine. His release was negotiated by Russian by the Russian government. He was escorted out of the country and back home by agents of the Russian consulate. Mm. Mm. So he did not return to Germany. All right. So mm. Vitaly Kaliev was appointed deputy minister of construction of the state. He held that post until 2016. When he retired, he received a state award by the local government. The medal was awarded to him for, quote, improving the living conditions of the inhabitants of the region, for educating the younger generations. And this one is interesting for maintaining law and order. (laughs) Uh, Despite the fact that he took the law into his own hands. For sure. Right. And Vitaly remarried more than a decade after the tragedy to a woman named uh, Irina. She was an engineer. In 2018, Irina gave birth to twins. A boy, Maxim, a girl, Sophia. Hmm. So he has hmm. two children now, and Vitaly uh, Kaliev is still alive. Hmm. All right, so let's talk about pop culture. Okay. So in pop culture, this story was the inspiration for a number of songs, including by Western artists. It was made into a movie in Russia. Hmm. It was the basis for an American movie featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> Wow. It was the subject of a lot of TV shows, including a true crime episode. It was also turned into an off-Broadway play. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Now I'm kind of shocked that I didn't hear anything about it. But, you know, with all that, anyways. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So before I say my sources, tell me your comments, Kent. Come on. You got Uh, something to say, man. Let's hear it. He's just shaking his head. So, well, I'm shaking my head uh, because the cycle of violence never, never improves anything. Um, no, it, it's just never. revenge on revenge on revenge. And until you deal with it, until you address it, until you resolve the conflict on the inside, um, you know, um, you never, you never, you never get through your grief, right? And that's it's true. All, that's absolutely true. And. I mean, as horrible as it, as it was, as preventable as it was by breaking any one of those chains in the sequence um, that was required to get to this accident, right? Uh, and how fragile that, that chain of, uh, of, uh, of circumstances was, right? Um, that still... That always sits with me too, at, at what you just said, how fragile it was. At any point, a tiny action could have yeah. changed the course of history, realistically. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and think of, think of, think of the lives changed. Of course, the the the, the families of folks who lost, uh, lost their loved ones, um, of the people on the ground, of the entire town of Ufa. Um, you know, oh who, for sure. You know, because I'm sure that revenge was on the mind for for you know easily a decade or longer. Right, and I I think you know you said why did they throw him a parade, and I, I really feel like what happened is that Vitali became sort of a symbol of their retribution, right? Yeah, you know everybody kind of internalized him as like their hero or like the one who was gonna. Yeah, I mean I, I'm sure that they had all had fantasies at some point of man I could just go and you know and make this exactly. right and like rev- you know they, so basically he like he was like the symbol of their revenge. Yeah, well, and, 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 I think- and the the engineer mentality there, because you know, um, when I when I have problems, I always think of engineering my way out of it. And as an engineer, he needed to do something. He needed to take action. He needed to actually accomplish something in order for him to to process whatever his grief was, right? Right. And probably the same for a lot of that town as well, which still doesn't justify uh, uh, the response to that. Well, and even more than just the uh, even more than just the immediate actions, right? The chain could have been broken by, um, you know, the the aftermath also chain could have been broken by something like, let's say, more effective news communication. Because yeah. had Vitali not shown up at the accident scene, he may not have been as traumatized as finding the bodies yep. of his family. Oh no, kidding! Right? Had the news media said, yeah, it's fatal had he not shown up, it would have likely been less traumatic for him. Yep. And yep. so yep. there's that, you know, and then he shows up at the door and he's got a knife and there's that. And then, you know, there's trauma on the parts of the children. And like, there's just all these ways to break this chain, not only the initial disaster, but the post-disaster disaster. 
um, yeah. the whole way. And it, it's, it's a, just a tragic story all around, but it sat with me. And it, when, when we did episode, when we did part one of this episode nine, this popped in my mind because when you said to me, would have immediate actions change the future? Yeah. That is what really kind of sat with me. I, you know, the ultimate breaking of this chain would have been governments acting in a timely way. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like right and, now, and... Kent, you know, we're talking about COVID-19. Yep. Right? We're talking about the coronavirus. Governments acting in a responsible and quick way can actually have a significant outcome for people's lives. Enormous impact. Yep. In terms of flattening the curve, in, in terms of... Um... Uh, keeping our healthcare uh, professionals, you know, safe and healthy as they try to take care of everyone that's going through this. Uh, you know, and, and each of us <clears throat> does its own part. Our family um, in this situation, uh, we're pretending as though we all have the virus. Oh, sure. And in the last week now, I've been the only one of our house that has gone outside, and that's basically to get groceries, right? Um, and not, uh, we, we've been outside around our house, oh, sure. uh, but we, but we haven't been interacting with anyone because we don't want to, we, we, we live in a town with a lot of elderly folks and we want to make sure that, uh, we're not passing it along, assuming that we have it, of course, which I'm not sure that we do. I, I hope we don't. Uh, but sure. I want to make sure that folks who, 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 um, who aren't as able to, <clears throat> uh, to deal with it, um, on their own, who have underlying conditions and, and things like that don't get it from us. Right. Sure. If we put this on to, on top of our story, you're like the flight crew, right. And you're taking yeah. actions. Um, but the government could really have helped to prevent this as well. You know, our administration oh, yeah. was saying fake yep. news and all of this a long time ago. We did not have to be here. Exactly. Like in this story, we did not have to get here immediate action from a government can change people's lives. And in the case of, you know, this Bashkirian flight and of course the DHL don't, don't, don't let me downplay that, you know, there are two lives on there. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you know, those, those people have families as well. So in their case that the government could have taken action and really made a difference in people's lives like the coronavirus. Yep. Absolutely. And there's, there's kind of an inertia. It seems like the bigger the organization, the bigger the institution, the more inertia there is, and then the more difficult it is to get that organization to change, right? Um, because they're convinced that their plan and their, um, uh, their response mechanisms uh, are up to the task where it's clear that um, it was not the case, especially with this one this time around. Right. Well, what do you think, Ken? What's your general overview? You like it? Um, it's um, hard to listen to, right? It is. This one was difficult to listen to because I, I I was trying to imagine what that father was going through when the, when he was finding his family. I literally can't. And, I literally can't imagine that. And, and I have and I have would, children this age. So and it would mess you up. It, it, there's no doubt in my mind it would mess you up, and there would be a lot of unwinding to do. It would take years, if not decades. But it doesn't justify. Going sure, out if you and ever got over else. it, right? But right. I agree. It doesn't. It doesn't justify going and killing someone else. Yeah. Which now those children are obviously going to be, sure, you know, damaged for their lives as well. So oh, obviously yeah. having Seem to watch their father get murdered in front of them. Yeah, which is, I mean the horror of that. Ooh. So yeah. Ooh. All right, Kent. So I'm going to read my sources. All right. <laughs> my main source was the official report from the German Bureau of Aircraft Accident Investigation. So basically, the NTSB report, sort of for Germany. Mm -hmm. The Daily Mirror, the Lost Children exclusive. A CNN article called "Vain Attempt to Avert Deadly Crash," Wikipedia as usual, where I I don't where I also donate money, um, and I think that everybody should donate money to Wikipedia. It's an excellent mm -hmm. source, and I use it all the time. And I know that a lot of people do. They don't uh, give money, but you know, back in the old days, the encyclopedia cost like a thousand dollars to buy a set. That's a good point. And now it's yep. free, so you know, giving a couple bucks to Wikipedia would would be a good thing to do. Um, and I used, would probably only improve the uh, the quality of the information in it. Absolutely, absolutely, and and also people can go and open source. You know, it's open source guide, so uh, mm -hmm. people with a lot of knowledge can go in and add information. And I encourage them to do that because the more information we have, the more accurate it can be. And um, of course, you have to show your sources. So you know, Wikipedia is a great source. The independent.co.uk. I used that. I used a, I used an article from the Scotsman.co.uk. I used Skyguide, which, like we said, was the Swiss controlling agency. I used their official page and their official report. I also used uh, freelibrary.com, 
I also find myself using something called the Wayback Machine. Uh, it's web.archive.org. Mm. And basically, Wayback Machine, what it does is it takes articles that would go away, right? Because they're on CNN and they're going to mm. be replaced by other articles. Mm -hmm. And it takes a snapshot of those and it archives them. Oh, nice. So essentially, the Wayback Machine goes through the internet and it gathers all the data, captures it, and puts it in a database. So yeah, that, snapshots it. Yeah, so that we can go back, you know, in... 2020 and we can look at an article from 2002 cool where it wouldn't be available on the website because it would take up a lot of space yep. you know for yep. them and eventually be flushed out right and eventually they're going to dump it so all right kent so that's our story today wow um is there a part three there is not a part three okay we're gonna <laughs> the next the next one we do we'll uh we'll, we'll we're gonna do something completely different Okay, well, maybe a, maybe a part three would be a uh, you know a, a one month history of all the uh, uh, near misses that TCAS ensured did not happen. <laughs> hey, that would be a good one, actually. And oh, yeah, kinda... I, and there are so many, so many after all of these changes. Have you? So when we get a resolution advisory, which uh -huh. happens relatively regularly, to be honest, wow, uh, we're required to we're required to follow the resolution advisory. Yep, and we're required to file an NTSB report. You file a little report that talks about your resolution advisory. You put in a couple of details. You click send. So there is a database out there that says, you know, it says like, did you yeah. see the other airplane? What conditions yeah. were you in? What was the controller telling you to do? It's like very basic questions to kind of keep track of this and make sure that we're up to date and working hard and, you know, in the system that we're, that we're using is working and our training is working. Yep. Stuff like yep. that. The, the capital S system. <clears throat> that makes yes, sense. exactly. Right. Exactly. The capital S system is working and it's worth noting that it's important to keep that data, to get that yep. data and keep it right. Cause then we can graph trends and we can see if there's anything slipping. And that's something that we didn't really have pre computer age or we did, but it was difficult yeah. to compile data like that. It'd be some analyst working at a back office somewhere looking at a pattern going, ah. <laughs> right. right, exactly. And then and then we're also relying on that analyst yep. to um, to sort of spit out a conclusion. And, and now computers do it. Yep. I'm going to have to look at that publicly available source of information. I'm just curious to know how many near misses happen these days. I think I'm pretty sure it's out there. I didn't look it up. That's a great question. And I will look it up. But um, yeah, that, that's that's maybe another episode that's good. There so. we go. <laughs> All right, Kent. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for joining me remotely. And maybe next time we'll do it in person. What do you think? That sounds good. It's been a pleasure and uh, always fascinating. Yeah, man. Thanks for being on board. Take care, everyone.